Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This must be very slim. It's gone. I'm Bernie Slavin and this is my podcast Total BS. I will be doing every Monday and Friday at 6pm throughout the season, giving my honest and forthright opinions on Borough, the team I played for and followed for 35 years. For those younger listeners, just a quick introduction about myself. I arrived in Teesside back in 1985 for a fee of £25,000 and went on to play 382 games, scoring 147 goals. After my playing days came to an end, I went into the, the media and I did 500 commentary games with the late great Ali Brownlee and I went on to do 3,000 Legends nightly shows, which was arguably the biggest, well, it was the biggest show in the North East at the time. As it stands today, I'm the last player to score 20 league goals for our club and that was back in 1989. The question is, can a Sombolonga, Fletcher or any new arrivals match or beat this tally? We're going to soon find out. I'd just like to thanks, uh, say thanks to Lucid Technology, Cornerstone Business Solutions, Ocean Lighting, Galaxy Blinds for sponsoring my podcast for the season. Very much appreciated. Well, delighted. Watch the Bristol uh, v Borough game on Tuesday night. Terrific three points. Uh, if I was a betting man, I think I said it last week, I'd probably went for draw at best, but to get all three was terrific. Uh, good to see Patrick Roberts involved. He looked lively throughout, created things, you know, he's a live wire throughout. Um, delighted to see George Savile grabbing the goal. I mean, he's come in for a fair bit of stick since he's arrived and, you know, people have got their opinions on him. They look at his price tag and his goal contribution since he's arrived and not a lot of goals. He should be scoring more goals, to be fair. But I have to say, awful defending from the Bristol defender, Taylor Moore. I mean, he looked like Dudley Moore, Roger Moore, even Lon Moore. I mean, it was a schoolboy era. I mean, it, it took me back. I was thinking, obviously, there was a Jack Charlton side here, very successful at Middlesbrough, but I played under Jack with the Republic. And Jack, he would not allow you to play square balls in defence. He'd definitely not allow you to take chances. And when he did, he would string you up, especially if you're a centre-half. He'd have strung you up with the gullies, the knackers. 
Uh, but try to take on an opponent in the middle of your 18-yard box is suicidal. But hey, don't take it away from Savile. He was switched on, he won the possession, and he finished it off. Uh, as a goal scorer who loved to celebrate, obviously my celebration was on the, the whole gate end railings in the main. I love celebrations. I love the Ravinelli one. I love Fjordtoff. You know, there was loads of great celebrations. But I loved when Middlesbrough scored the goal, Savile scored the goal. They all ran towards the corner flag on the left-hand side and all 10 of them all jumped on top of each other. I mean, the delight uh, about the goal was evident and, and it showed a togetherness which for me was refreshing. And I love to see that. I love to see players mingling and all enjoying the moment. Uh, and the final third... Obviously, Borough and Warnock know uh, they have their work cut out. Or we've got our work cut out. Fletcher's out for months. Sombolonga's still injured and didn't play against Bristol. Akpom is now a main striker and he's a novice. He's new to Middlesbrough. Um, and he's, he's a sole striker. Warnock knows he needs the hierarchy to deliver and get in a striker. I'm sure they're trying and I'm sure Warnock's knocking on the door regular. Warnock's not the type to just sit back and let it happen or if it doesn't happen, just go on with things. He'll be knocking on the door, you can be rest assured and demanding he needs one in a loan and he needs one in a free. But whoever it is, he has to be able to deliver a few goals, stamp his authority in the shot-shy strike force. I mean, Cardiff, uh, they're the visitors at the Riverside on Saturday. And after that, I, I think I mentioned it in the last podcast on the Monday, I did the, uh, I was a guinea pig for to see if the lounges work. I was in there with the staff. Well, it is working, so I believe the hosts this weekend are uh, my old teammate Matt Proctor and former referee Jeff Winter, who's my pal. Uh, both of them will be working Saturday, so good luck to them, good luck to the people that turns up. Hope you have a great day and enjoy the hospitality experience. I mean, it might be the last one, there might be many after this, depending on the pandemic situation and what Boris, Monken Boris uh, decides he's going to do um, but the onus is on us <laughs> I'm just laughing Bumping Boris, the onus is on us to take the game to them uh, and to take all three points and I'm sure the lads are on a high after the Bristol result and I expect a victory hand in heart I, I really do um, I just want to say thanks to all who have ordered my new publication Slave and Snaps and if you would like a personalised signed copy you can order via slaveandsnaps.co.uk I mean, they have been delivered and shipped over from Singapore in recent weeks. Uh, I, pre, I got pre-orders in. I've, I've signed all them, so I'm, I'm on the ball now. Or you can get us on our, our order via bernieslevin.co.uk. Um, over the season and the podcast, I mean, last season I did a few of the old ones I did at Borough TV days, and I'll be bringing them into play over the course of this season. But up until now, I've did I've interviewed the guys like Gary Pallister, Archie Stevens, Matt Proctor, Terry Cochran, Craig Hignett. Well, for this podcast, I've decided that a young lady will be asking myself questions. Bernie, who were your boyhood heroes? Well, as a Celtic fan, I had many, many boyhood heroes. There was Jimmy Johnston, the, the, the ginger winger. He was wispy, beat men for fun, creating score goals. Billy McNeil, who was the captain. Bobby Murdoch, who came down to Teesside to play for Middlesbrough. He was a Lisbon Lion, of course. Bobby Lennox. Uh, I was only young when I watched these guys and as I got older and developed an understanding of the game it was Kenny Douglas I was attracted to I mean I wore the number 7 shirt which I ended up playing in for the majority of my career at Middlesbrough actually when I first came to Middlesbrough I had number 9 and I remember going to Willie Madrid and saying listen Willie can I wear number 7 and after several games I eventually got the number 7 uh, but he created chances by the bucket load Douglas for his teammates scored loads and great goals and tap-ins. So for me, it was Douglas. I had the privilege of playing alongside King Kenny at a charity game held at Darlington. It was actually a former Borough star who went on to Liverpool fame, uh, David Hodgson, that arranged the game. It was to raise funds and ended up playing alongside Kenny. It was the first time I've ever met him. Obviously played against Liverpool when he was manager, but um, to meet him up close. Did I find him charming, engaging? Not really. I thought he was fairly dry-humoured. And... Uh, yeah, he wasn't the most charismatic man, if I'm being honest, but he was still my boyhood hero. Uh, although I did play against Liverpool, as I say, when he was manager, but I, I never got to meet him. What are your memories of Willie Madron? Well, Willie Madron, if it wasn't for the late, great Willie Madron giving me the opportunity by replying to my letter, don't forget I, send these let I sent these letters off when I was Scotland's top scorer, no club, I was out in the wilderness, and it was the guy Andrew Gold's idea 
um, who was a local journalist to send letters off. Um, but if it wasn't for that, I would have probably uh, had a future signing in the door under Thatcherism. Don't forget, it was Thatcherism in Scotland coming from a council estate. Uh, as a kid growing up in the council estate, uh, there were three things you were going to be. It was going to be on the dole, a pop star, unfortunately I wasn't a great singer, or a footballer. But what he proved, he had an eye for talent, signing players like Pallister, Stephen Pears, Marcel, and he gave a lot of the young lads an opportunity. I mean, Wally was an absolute gentleman. In fact, at times he was too nice. And a few of the experienced lads at the times, guys like Pat Heard, there was Donna Reardon, uh, Gary Rill, some of them would take advantage of that, which was a great shame and disrespectful for me. He deserved better. I mean, it was just a great shame that Wally wasn't part of the success to follow because he had certainly played a major part in the development of the team. What are your first team debut memories? My first team debut memories uh, was playing at Ellen Road. My first game was against Leeds United, Ellen Road. And I remember the atmosphere was, was hostile that day. Um, and I, I remember banners up. Eddie Gray, a former Scottish international Leeds United star, had just lost his job. I was emo After the game, I was emo emotionally and physically mentally drained. I mean, Leeds won the game that day. I think George McCluskey, a former Celtic player, who I used to watch from the terraces at Parkhead, scored from the penalty spot. That's if my memory serves me right. I might be wrong on that. But I remember returning to Teesside in the night and thinking, if every game is as demanding as that, I'm in for a very difficult time. I mean, probably... I was a bit harsh on myself. I'd not played first-team football for months. Don't forget, I was out in the wilderness training on my own, waiting in a club to uh, come back after my begging letter and, and take me on board. And I'd just sampled full-time training on a daily basis. Don't forget, I was a part-timer at Albion Rovers. The club went through relegation and liquid liquidation. How did it affect you? Well, at the time, it affected me greatly. I mean, I'd just purchased my first house in Westbourne Road in the heart of Middlesbrough, not far from the Linthorpe pub. I'd paid 25 grand in fact, that was a fee that Middlesbrough paid for me, uh, for it. And I had a mortgage to pay. So when we, we illegally stopped getting paid, don't forget, when we were players at Middlesbrough, they stopped the payments. Every club was, was within their rights to go and get another club and get paid somewhere else because the contract was broken by the football club, not by the players. Um, but I had financial problems. Uh, I know I could have escaped and, and joined another club because of breach of contract. But to be brutally honest... Nobody really knew who, who I was. I'd proved nothing yet in Middlesbrough. I was, I was just in the door. So the chances of getting another team were nil. And don't forget, I would have to sell my house uh, at the same time. I was, a sh I, was sh I was short of money, like most of the lads. My late father, I remember my late father, Hugh, I called him Sugar. His nickname was Hatchet. Uh, he came down from Glasgow on a couple of occasions and brought me furniture and household accessories to help me out. Could you imagine a modern player doing that? The modern player getting the father to drive three hours in a van to deliver gear to fill your house with furniture because you can't afford it. But every day I used to be glued to the local TV channels, especially like Tyne Tees local, locally, or the radio, waiting to hear the outcome of the future. Uh, and it was via the TV that I actually found out that the club had been saved. To say I was relieved, and I'm sure the lads felt the same, was an understatement. My late father was forever reassuring me you know, when he was down or when I would phone him on a nightly basis, he would say, look, the clubs in the past have always been saved and they've had similar problems, so you'll survive, don't worry about it. And thankfully he was right. The first game was played at Hartlepool's ground. What are your memories? Well, my memories of that game at Hartlepool are coming, out, uh, coming off the coaches. There was Parley wearing a jumper, Stephen Pears had his own attire, I, had a, I don't know what I had on, an odd jacket and, and tie. Um, it was a tweed jacket, actually, and a black and white tie. I looked more like a Newcastle player than a Middlesbrough player. And obviously we couldn't afford club blazers, or the club couldn't afford them. I remember getting changed in this cabin. It was like a gypsy's caravan, mind you, one you went in to get your palm red. Uh, and I was waiting on someone popping out with a crystal ball, but never happened. The whole day, it was like dreamlike. Uh, as if it wasn't happening. I mean, here we were, professional players changing in a cabin. And I heard that we were a late kickoff for those that was there or the younger listeners. 
there was an earlier kickoff. Can't remember the opposition, but there was a game before us, and then we were the late kickoff. So we get changing the, the the cabin, and I can't remember much about it. The I just remember the adrenaline levels were were too great. I don't really remember much about the game, but I do remember Archie Stevens scoring two terrific goals. Uh, one was a long range, I say it was about 25 yards. Archie, according to him, it was like 45 yards. But we could only draw that day. But the most important thing was we were back in business. I mean, from the the, the verge of bankruptcy and, and, and you know, liquidation and the, the gates locked to Erson Park, we still had a football club and a group of local lads who wore the shirt with pride. I mean, back then, there was no kissing the badge, no need to kiss the badge. I was classed as a fauna, as was Archie Stevens, maybe Brian Laws. The less were born in Redcar, Thornaby, Middlesbrough, Stockton, and they all loved the club. Gaining promotion after liquidation, was this a shock to you? Gaining promotion after liquidation, was this a shock to you? <laughs> uh, well, what, what an achievement that was to come from the ashes of, as I mentioned, relegation, liquidation and bankruptcy. It was incredible. Don't forget, we had no money. A group of lads, as I mentioned, from local areas. I was classed as a fauna. As I mentioned, actually, Liverpool, fauna. The squad, it was paper thin, with about 15 players in total. The group of players were totally dedicated and grateful for the opportunity, because a lot of them could have disappeared into obscurity. We were honest, we were talented, and there was a bond that was terrific, not just on the pitch, but off it. Did I honestly believe we, we could gain promotion the first season? I probably never gave it a thought. Well, certainly not initially. But as the season wore on and their defence was setting setting records, they, they had four clean sheets uh, in the opening few games. Myself and Archie were getting goals. And the midfield, guys like Hamilton, Laws and company, they were scrapping for every ball. And it became evident we were as good as anybody in the league. Memories of the Wigan game and the celebrations. Yeah, Wigan was obviously the last game of that particular season, and uh, I think we 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 well we could have drew to to, to get promotion, um, and it ended up a draw that night. But I just remember the tension before the game, the expectations. It was a hot summer's night. There was a capacity crowd in the uh, Erson Park. The atmosphere was electric, and the crowd were packed like sardines, uh, especially in that hall end. And what a difference. When I first arrived in, in Teesside, there was like 3,500 fans. There was loads of gaps around Erson Park. But here we were, last game of that season, after the horrific um, struggling financially, mobbed, crammed like sardines. In the game, with the lion's share of possession, I remember, we created numerous chances, opportunities. I went close, Archie went close. But we just couldn't grab that elusive goal. But I remember late on, ball came in for the right for Ripley. Uh, and it was Archie rose like a kestrel Archie was great in there he was the same height as me I couldn't jump but Archie was terrific in there he was up there hovered headed downwards as you're, you're meant to do as a striker and miraculously the keeper saved it but hundreds of fans they ended up running on the pitch thinking it was over the line but it was actually saved but I remember where a minute ago there was a free kick it was near the dugout uh, or the tunnel uh, and then they dropped the ball the referee got a grip with a few of the players he says look I'm going to drop the ball give you time to get off the pitch before everybody because he, he was anticipating like we were that the fans were going to run on the pitch as um, soon as he dropped the ball we ran like the clappers down the tunnel within seconds the pitch was invaded by jubilant jubilant and ecstatic Borough fans and rightly so you know what, what a scenario they'd shared the, the frailties along with us the pain and the anxiety that the players had endured, and the relief, the relief was shared by everybody at that final whistle. I mean, I remember the players gathering in the director's box, there's pictures going around, you see them on the social network, they come up now and again, and they're singing their hearts out along with the fans. I think the fan was, you'll never walk alone. I thought I was batting Parkhead, supporting Celtic, or down at Anfield with Liverpool. But it was a song that always get the, the back in the hairs, uh, or the back of my neck, the hairs in the back of my neck standing up. It was a fantastic ending to a fantastic season. It was, it was glorious, memorable. What was special about that 86 team? I get asked this question a lot. I mean, it was a unique period. Obviously, not every player goes through, but we went through. And a group of players, uh, and it'll never happen again. I mean, they all genuinely loved the club. As I mentioned earlier, they did not have to kiss the badge. 
to show their love and their loyalty. The performances proved that. They were all down-to-earth lads. You know, there was no big-time Charlies, no egos. Uh, they all wanted to do well for themselves and the town and for the club. I mean, the back five pairs, Cooper, Parkinson, Pallister and Mowbray were totally dedicated to defending and keeping clean sheets and they did it very, very well. The midfield players, I mentioned Hamilton, there was Gary Gill in there with Laws and Paul Kerr, who was nicknamed Nookie. It was nothing to do with his off-the-field activity, it was to do with his eyes. Uh, played as if their lives depended on it. And there was total commitment. Nobody ever shirked responsibilities. They weren't allowed to with manager Bruce Rearch at the helm. Um, and Archie, who was older, he was the elder statesman at the, uh, at the time in the team. He was a perfect partner for me. We complimented each other. He was tough. He was excellent in there, scored goals, was fearless. And apart from our football qualities, uh, we were and still are good guys. They were all good guys. It's amazing to think that out of the team, 86, six or seven of the players went on to play international football. I think that's a phenomenal amount of, of players uh, to, to play international football. How disappointing was it to get beat by Leicester on the final day of the season and miss out on automatic promotion? Yeah, that was that was very difficult to take. You know, that this was a falling season. Uh, we're playing the last game. Results have to go away. We have to beat Leicester to get promotion at the top flight. What a scenario, what a dream. Uh, but it was gut-wrenching. I remember arriving at Ayrson Park we used to get there about quarter to two, two o'clock in the afternoon. The team sheet used to go up in the wall. But I remember this carnival atmosphere. And when we went out to warm up, there was balloons everywhere. There was ticker tape, painted faces, the kids with the painted faces. There was people jumping out of aeroplanes, landing in the middle of the pitch. It was a way over the top. It was as if the fans and the football public thought it was a foregone conclusion, just a matter of turning up we were going to get promotion. But how wrong they all were. I mean, Leicester had nothing to play for, admittedly. But on the day, they gave us a lesson in football. I remember Peter Weir and Gary, Gary McAllister, both Scottish international at the time, grabbed the goals in the 2-1 victory for the visitors. I grabbed Borough's consolation. I remember returning to the... Dre- I, my memories of that was... Rem- I remember uh, returning to the dressing room after the game and I was distraught. One or two of the players... We're still confused as to whether we had actually made it into the top flight, depending on the results. And it wasn't long before we found out the path back to the top flight would have been via the playoffs. I'm sure my memory. I remember Bruce sitting us all down. So we come off the pitch, we're thinking, are we staying? Are we going or are we? Do we have to go via the playoffs? And I remember getting the news we had to go into the playoffs. And we were all distraught. I remember sitting in the dressing room. Bruce sitting his all down. I remember him just saying outright, right, get your, get your heads right. You're in on Monday morning. I want everybody bringing 100 quid because we're, we're going to get through the playoffs into the top flight. And I remember looking around the dressing room, obviously still distraught as everybody was. Some of the younger lads who were on about 250 at the time were thinking, how the fuck are we going to give him, uh, how are we going to give him 100 quid? What we're going to, some of them are married, young kids, young families. Anyway, nobody in that dressing room didn't give Bruce 100 quid. So the Monday morning comes, we all put 100 quid in. And what happens, we put 100 quid in and Bruce is right, I'm putting it on uh, for the playoffs to get promotion uh, into the top flight. What are your memories of the playoff game against Bradford and Chelsea? Um, well, I remember having a, an awful record against Bradford, not just me, the team in general, but with a chance and opportunity to beat them in the biggest game of all. I think it was 2-1 down there, I think Trevor Senior scored. And then the return leg, we won 2-1. And I was fortunate enough to score the first. Stuart Ripley, he, I remember Stuart Ripley having a shot for the right-hand side, keepers parried it, and uh, from an acute angle... I managed to squeeze it into the, the net in front of the Holgate end. I always remember jumping in the Holgate end. Big Trevor Senior joined me, Gary Hamilton joined me, Paul Kerr. And we just loved every minute and we, you know, we loved bonding with the Holgate end and it was a, a great start. Um, the second goal, that was a great strike. I remember Gary Hamilton, Hammy. Uh, I remember the dance as much as the goal, for being honest. He just started, he scored the goal, both hands aloft. And he started wiggling his wobbly ass with his hands above his head. It was brilliant. I mean, I remember the Chelsea games. Uh, the first at Ersan Park in front of you, it was a packed house. 
Chelsea were favourites. It was a midweek game. It was a tense affair, fraught atmosphere. But we took the lead. Our cross from the left-hand side, big Trevor Senior connected brilliantly. He made it 1-0. Then we get to the second half. Trevor from the middle of the halfway scoops the ball with his left foot onto the left wing. I get by Steve Clark, who's now the Scotland manager, um, and I carry it. And I carry it into the box and Steve Clark's chasing me. And I get my shot off. The initial shot was parried. And as it comes back to me, I get the rebound and I force it in. Again, I'm on the Holgate end. And my, for my forte, of course, was jumping in the fence uh, in celebration. And that was a glorious moment for me, the team, and for the fans. I mean, that, that night I almost jumped over it, knowing the importance. Uh, we go to Stamford Bridge. We've got a two-goal cushion. The lads and I are certainly confident that we can go there to Stamford Bridge and succeed. But they've got some quality players. They're little bit national players. Guys like Kerry Dixon, Pat Niven, uh, Peter Nicholas, he's a Welsh international. Gordon Jury, former Rangers player. In fact, Jury scored the goal. Early doors in the game. Backs against the wall. Uh, Gordon Jury scored. We're really under the cost then. But as a defensive unit that day, you know, the back line, midfield, were immense. Apart from me, of course, I can't defend. I tried my best, but not very good at it. And I was forever getting eerie. I always remember that game getting eerie, and it was all Hammy. The, the, the famous words for Hammy were, get back, you Scottish fucking lazy bastard. That was his words throughout the game. It wasn't for the first time I'd heard this, but I tried to oblige and, and block holes, but I wasn't very good at defending. But when the final whistle went, I always remember, I was nearest the 10,000 travelling Borough fans, and I always remember... Going towards him, I never, I, I never shoot a Chelsea player's hand. I was never a fan of Chelsea. Um, so as, it, as I'm going there to to applaud the the fans and thank them for the the, the backing throughout that season and since the liquidation scenario two years previous, I'm there and I'm just thinking all the Borough players are behind me. And as I'm getting closer, the fans become animated. They're pointing over my shoulder. I'm thinking, what the point? Now? As I turn round, all the Borough players. My teammates were heading down the tunnel. The Chelsea fans were, they were on their knees. The, Chel uh, the, the Chelsea players were on their knees. They were gutted. They couldn't believe this riffraff from Teesside beat the, 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 the big aristocrats from London. Anyway, the, 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 the villains, the hoodlums, the, the hooligans were busting through the seams in their thousands, in their droves, and heading towards me. Well, anybody that played with me or watched me would know I wasn't quick. But I would have uh, beat Linford Christie that day. You can see it on YouTube. You see everybody run down the tunnel and the number seven just gets in as the police are coming on with the, the batons and the horseback. And for me, that was... Yeah, it never took the shine off it, but we were locked in the dressing room for about 45 minutes till the riffraff get cleared off the, off the pitch. When they did, we eventually came out and we shared that glory, glorious moment uh, in triumph with the, the, the Middlesbrough faithful. And that was a real day to cherish. But I always remember Colin Henderson, God rest him, he was the then chairman of Middlesbrough. And he came into the dressing room and says, obviously, congratulations, lads. Would you like to get into the heart of London, go to the Hilton, have a slap-up meal? Uh, obviously, everything's paid for. And the lads, being down-to-earth lads, I can't imagine the, the modern players doing it, we all said, no, no, let's get fish and chips on the way out, which we did. And we'll go to Stockton we ended up in the mall and I always remember stopping in the fish and chip shop while the lads getting chips don't forget we'd went for the Ashes two years previous to the top flight with limited money limited funding local lads what an achievement we're sitting eating fish and chips or standing outside the shop and the big coach is practically on a curb and fans were coming out of London Borough fans pumping their horns and stopping and can you sign this and well done lads and it was a great moment and obviously on the night with a, with a great night in the mall which is no longer there I heard it's been demolished You spent only one season in the top flight why? Um, well we got promoted I remember a lot of journalists going through the squad of players and assessing who would do what in the top flight and who would find it difficult and everyone was tipping a rock solid defence of previous seasons to succeed uh, and, and I, I, I agreed with that and the jury was out for one or two midfielders. I remember a, a guy uh, called Dave Hilly. He was actually a Scottish, uh, a former footballer who wrote for, the, I think it was a post, the Sunday Post up here, based in Newcastle. I think he used to play for Third Lanark, former Newcastle United player. And he gave his opinion on myself. 
and he praised my exploits in the third division, the second division, but he didn't think I could make the transition. Well, that was his opinion. I remember reading it and thinking, well, if I got a chance, I'll soon show you. And that season, despite uh, becoming relegated, uh, we finished second bottom that season, we get relegated. I finished third top scorer in the top flight. This is equivalent to today's Premier League. And the only guys that beat me were John Aldridge, who played for Liverpool, and Alan Smith, who was with Arsenal. Arsenal won the league, Liverpool were second. But I have to give uh, Dave Hilly, I have to be fair to Dave Hilly, he put in the paper the following season that he'd got it wrong. That season of relegation, their defensive unit was uncharacteristically lacking, uh, leaking goals rather. They were, they were letting goals in galore. And the players we signed didn't have the effect we were hoping. I mean, we signed Peter, Peter Davenport. That ruffled a few feathers. Not because he's ability or character. I mean, some people think, I don't even get on with Davenport. Peter Davenport was a lovely guy. He was a, a family man. Didn't really go out socialising with the lads. But if he was on more money than us and driving flash cars or um, sponsored cars that we were fighting for after doing the business, that wasn't his fault. But because of his reward for signing, and as I mentioned, the car and the wages and the, the big house, whatever, the lads had done all the groundwork, like myself and like Pallister and all the rest of them, and the graph for Borough success since the liquidation period, we were still on average money. There was only Tony Mowbray, apart from Davenport, had a, a Peter Davenport, had a sponsored car. And I remember uh, we certainly, well, back then we, we certainly didn't live in big houses. I mean, I think Peter Davenport lived in Durham facing Bruce Rear. So I take it both of them had money at the time, unlike us. Um, but that signing, in my opinion, changed the, the, the dynamics in the dressing room. And for me, that was detrimental uh, and no doubt played a part in getting us relegated. Because there, there was a grumbling in the dressing room. You know, they weren't, people weren't saying outright to Bruce, but there was talk going on. And not directly, probably talk, they were talking about the luxuries and the, 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 the things that Davenport was getting. That we, we did all the ground, we did all the speed work. We'd worked with bollocks off, with asses off. And, and weren't getting sponsored cars and weren't getting big wage increases. And then they were signing new guys for 750 or a million pounds, which is massive money um, to us. And, uh, yeah, we just felt that some of us were getting mistreated. But I'd given my best shot by scoring goals that season, um, but I could maybe have grabbed a few more. The reason I say that is because I was moved to outside left, just like Patrick Banford in, in recent years with Karanka. He scored 19 league goals. Could have got more league goals if it wasn't for Karanka pushing it onto the right. Well, when Davenport came, I was pushed to the left. I played about 20-odd games out there. So for me... 15 league goals, third top scorer. I think I could have hit the 20 mark if I was playing every game up the middle. But anyway, the, that was that was a tale about, about that. What was your relationship like with Bruce? Well, Bruce's nickname was Gaddafi. You know, I'm sure everybody's heard of Gaddafi or <laughs> whatever you think, your, your feelings on him or, or your opinion on him. Gaddafi was a, a dictator. And, and he was known for, Bruce was known for being ruthless. At times he was intimidating and he was fearless. And some of the younger lads were actually petrified of him. Some of the lads used to quake in their boots when he shouted at them. Um, I, think it was a, I think he was on the borderline of a dictator. I mean, he demanded respect. I remember one of his sayings was, I don't want you to like me, I want you to respect me. And me personally, I had the utmost respect for him. I'm sure the majority deep down respected him, uh, even if they didn't like him. He was a great coach. He was a fantastic coach, great motivator, knew the game inside out. He was passionate for the game. Uh, his passion was immense. Uh, Bruce, Bruce was a, he was a, a regimental background. I think his father was in the army, whatever, a sergeant major. And he was a strict disciplinarian. You know, someone he booked, I needed somebody to boot me up the arse when I wasn't doing things right and he certainly did that time and time again. He knew what buttons to press, how to wind me up and he did it very well. I probably had more verbal ding-dongs with Bruce than most. Uh, obviously, I had strong opinions so I would have verbal ding-dongs with him but he never left me out the start of the living. I mean, he was a dictator. Some people say a bully. I mean, Pally, Pally Gary Pally said he was a bully. I didn't think he was a bully. I just think he was trying to motivate us. But I'm sure I would have uh, very seldom played with my confrontational attitude 
um, if I played under weaker managers. I've said on many occasions what he did in getting us out the third to the second to the first consecutive season by a group of local lads, very little money at his disposal, was a greater achievement than Jose Mourinho or Jose Mourinho winning the title with Chelsea or Sir Alec Ferguson won it with Man United. I mean, I remember a time when he publicly attacked me in Pallister uh, for a below par performance against Blackpool. What happened, we're playing, we play Blackpool in a league game. The game ends, it's Ayrson Park, by the way, it's a home game you gave me us. We lose 3-0. Uh, nationally, locally and nationally, Bruce Rear points the finger at me and Pallister, known my mates and social mates, and he says, Pallister cannot go from one extreme to the other. Uh, meaning last week it was good, this week it was it was tragic and poor. He says, and as for slaving, he should start showing us what he gets paid for. I was on 300 quid a week, 250 quid a week. Anyway, I remember uh, St. Pauli, absolute tosser, Gaddafi, you can shove it and all this, carry on. And A week or two later, there's the FA Cup draw, and the FA Cup draw is made. Out come Middlesbrough, it's a home tie at Essen Park. The opposition, Blackpool. Well, I'm socialising with Palace and I'm saying, Pally, I'm saying, listen, we play Blackpool a couple of weeks' time, FA Cup, we're going to shove it right up Bruce Rear's ass. This is what I'm saying for two weeks, non-stop. I couldn't get it out of my head. We're going to prove to him he's not going to give us state stick. Anyway, Blackpool turned up at some Park, FA Cup tie. The scoreline was Middlesbrough 3, Blackpool 0. So we'd returned the compliment. Pallister was outstanding and Slaven got a hat-trick. So whatever you think of Reich, I think, I know he doesn't know Blackpool's coming out the hat, but I think it was great motivational uh, motivation. Motivational skills even. Can't even say the blinking word. I think it was good motivational skills from the manager. Again, winding us up. Knowing what we're all about. Knowing that we're going to respond. If it wasn't against Blackpool, it would have been against somebody else. Was it time for Bruce to go? Well, I think what you mean is, was it time for Bruce Rear to, to get sacked? I mean, it, it was really sad. I mean, Bruce commands and demands were, were not having the same effect in the players... You know, as he's, uh, I remember, I think it was the late, great Jack Charlton, he used to say, every four years a manager should move because everybody gets to know your makeup, know, know who you're all about. Well, Bruce and uh, commands and demands were, they weren't having the same effect in players as the lads were getting older. You know, they'd heard the same thing for so long and it had become accustomed to them. I mean, in the league, of course, we'd, uh, we'd hit a bad run of form and, and the pressure was piling up on Bruce. You know, and of course, it was always the manager who gets the chop, gets the stick. Players get sick as well, but the manager, he does carry the can. But I remember Bruce gathering all the players at training headquarters. We used to train at Maiden Castle in County Durham. And I always remember coming in the dressing room before training, and he just says, look, lads, I'm off. Thanks for everything you've done. And he gave a speech, and then he disappeared. I mean, I remember personally, I was devastated because he'd helped me greatly in my development. I mean, Wally Madrin, good rest of me, he got me into the club. But Bruce had really developed me as a player and made me appreciate the game more. I mean, he brought each and every one of his success, obviously the promotion, getting us to Wembley. And I, I recall, I always recall doing a, a paper article, one of the national papers. This was a few days after Bruce had departed. And I remember, I always remember doing the article, reading it and thinking, a couple of things I never says there, and the headline was a bit harsh or whatever. And I always remember standing at the gates of Ayrson Park. Bruce had gone, and I'm waiting, and one of the lads coming out. And here's Bruce walking down the cobbled street Ersom, at Ersom where, the, where the gates are. And I'm thinking, here's Bruce. I bet he's seen that article. Surely he doesn't believe it. I, I would have said that and, and slandered him because I was a Bruce Rear fan and I wouldn't do it behind his back. I'd have told him his face. Anyway, as he, he's approaching the gate, he walks up and he looks at me and he goes, you've had a lot to say for yourself in the paper, haven't you? And walked past me. And he, he was actually in to clear his office. So I went to a, a lassie called Karen Nelson, who's a club secretary. She's still there at the minute. She's been there for well, forever. And she, um, I went in to see her and I said, listen, when Bruce comes down from clearing his office, can you uh, can you get him to phone me? Well, if I would have said it and been slanderous to Bruce, then I'd have stopped by it and I'd have said, it's up yours, I don't give a damn. But I know I never said it, and it hurt me. 
Anyway, Bruce did phone me and says, right, and I says, look, Bruce, surely you know me as a human being and an individual and, and an opinionated one at that, that I would tell you to your face what I thought. I wouldn't go behind your back, especially when you've been sacked. I says, nobody's been hurting as, as much as me for your sacking. Anyway, accepted that I never says it. He asked for the reporter's name, which I, uh, I gave him, and that was the end of that. And that was journalists for you. Journalists still do it. They miscure things, they, um, they stitch you up. We call it stitch you up. But Bruce, on the back, I remember him sending me a letter and it was to Mr Slavin. It wasn't Bernie or Bernard, it was to Mr Slavin and family. So I was happy at that. We cleared the air and I'm still a Bruce Rare fan. Your Middlesbrough career came to an end under Lenny Lawrence. Was it down to a clash of personalities and were you forced out? Well, of course I was forced out. I mean, it was a clash of personalities. He didn't have any. From the off, it was evident that he wanted to bring his own men in. And I get that. He wanted to get rid of the old guard. I mean, he brought in Chris Morris from Celtic, Wally Faulkner, there was Tommy Wright, Paul Wilkinson, Andy Payton for a million, and many others. I've no doubt whatsoever he wanted his new signings to overshadow guys like myself. I mean, Graham Soonis, he did it at Rangers. He went to manager of Rangers. First guy he hit in the head, uh, Ali McCoy. Ali McCoy was a prolific goal scorer at Rangers for many, many years. Um, he was charismatic, he was charming soon as walked in there, I'm the big boy put him on the bench, Rudy Hullett went to Newcastle, first guy hitting the head Alan Shearer dropped him for a derby game Alan Shearer, I think he's one of the highest if not the highest Premier League scorer Hullett came in, knew that Shearer had many fans and I wouldn't say he had the, the, the charm like but he was a great goal scorer and here was Rudy Hullett bombing him out of the team managers with big egos want to make the mark and what better way to stamp their authority than to drop the club's most successful players I think I was one of well I'm one of Middlesbrough's most successful players I'm up there top 10 goal scorers and Lenny's first words in the opening they always remember him sitting in Ayrson Park it was a sunny day and uh, we were in the shade he faced the sun and he says look I'm looking for new heroes and there's a picture that floats about that the Gazette done years ago I'm looking for you heroes. I instantly knew there would be a clear out and eventually and eventually there was. And I remember, if you, if you ever see this picture, we're all sitting there before training. He's, Lenny Lawrence had just come in the door. That was his words. And I'm the only one not looking because as soon as he says those words, I looked at the ground. Uh, unlike Bruce, Lenny held grudges. He held things personally. And during one verbal uh, confrontation, and I mentioned it last week's podcast, it was before the Bristol game. I says, your problem is, you know fuck about football, you're a fucking teacher. And I was banished to the reserves for about five weeks. But my proudest moment while playing under Lenny was gaining promotion into the Premier League, the very first Premier League in 1992, when we beat Wolves in the last day of the season. But leading up to that game, I was told I'd be on the bench. I went through all that the other week, so I'll not go over all ground ball. But that season I finished top league scorer despite only starting 26 games. I'm sure that would have disappointed old Lenny. But the biggest injustice for me was letting me go while we were in the Premiership. I mean, I'd settled in nicely, scored two against Man City, one against Aston Villa, I was up against my old Republic Island teammate Paul McGrath, and one against Man United, which would prove to be my last goal in the number shot for, uh, shot for Middlesbrough. But at the time of my departure, I've mentioned this before, but with one striker, Paul Walkinson, he ended up playing John Henry, who was a winger up front, and no backup whatsoever. Needless to say, Borough were relegated, and if I, if I was doing radio at that time, I would have been furious and critical of the manager and the club, the guys at the top, for letting a guy who had scored 147 goals and was as fit as anyone go for nothing with no other strikers. It was absolutely nonsensical. Leaving Middlesbrough, you joined Port Vale. Why did you go there? Port Vale, well, I t I, you know, some people don't know, but I, um, when Middlesbrough had made it clear that I was getting shifted out, booted out or whatever, dragged out, um, I'd Bruce Reich, obviously former Borough manager who I adored, uh, who was Bolton manager at the time in the phone. I adored Ozzy Adelis, who managed West Brom. Don't forget, Ozzy Adelis, great player, Argentinian international. He was manager of West Brom. He'd phoned me. There were headlines saying Brian Clough was interested in taking me to Forest. I remember the Gazette, Cloughy in for Slaven. I met Joe Jordan 
in Middlesbrough, one of the tells in Middlesbrough, he wanted to sign me for Hearts. And there was a host of other clubs, including a team abroad. I think they face Cyprus. But the majority, the thing was, and the problem I had was, the majority wanted me to go to them until the end of the season. It was like a loan. Uh, and I wanted a two-year contract, a bit of security. And the only team, or one of the only teams that came up with that was Port Vale. The manager was John Rudge. I'd heard of John Rudge. And he gave me that. I ended up in the Potteries, where I had a great time. I mean, after my initial debut, I received my one and only red card in my professional career. I mean, we played late in Orient. I'll tell you a wee story. We were in the... So I've signed for... Reluctantly signed for Port Vale because I wanted to stay at Middlesbrough. Knew I was fit enough. Knew I was good enough. But obviously, the class of personalities and they had to get me out because Lenny couldn't man-manage me. So I'm shipped off to Port Vale. So it's a Friday in my travel. I'm gutted that I've actually left Middlesbrough. Although I've kept the family home up here. I've moved to the Potteries. So on the Friday we train. And then the Friday afternoon, we're ready to board the bus to go to Leighton Orient for my Port Vale debut so as I'm already on the bus John Rudge comes out the manager and he says oh Bernie I've got Middlesbrough's chief executive on the phone uh, he wants you to have a word so I says yeah what, what's that about he says I don't know he's, he's wanting to talk to you so I come off the bus and I go hello and it was Keith Lamb the then chief executive he says listen uh, before you board the bus will you sign a contract I've, I've sent it I've emailed or whatever uh, will you sign a contract saying you will say nothing uh, against Middlesbrough Football Club meaning nothing slanderous and I says listen I'm signing nothing you have to take my word for it and if you're not happy with that I says don't forget you are wanting shot of me I don't want to leave I'll be back in Teesside tomorrow anyway he huffed and puffed and says oh get John back on anyway needless to say never signed a contract saying I wasn't going to be slanderous toward Middlesbrough I wasn't slanderous I've got an opinion and, and I've still got an opinion I always will have an opinion I had nothing to slander Middlesbrough. They didn't want me. It was Lenny Lawrence. The top guys didn't sanction it. Or they did sanction it, rather. They, they never defended me. So that was that was fine. Uh, but against Leighton Orient, um, the guy had kicked me. I don't even know the centre-half's name, but uh, I go there on the Saturday, play Orient. First half, guy kicked lumps at me. 45 minutes. My head's still in the shed. I'm still gutted about leaving Middlesbrough. And I'd had enough. And I just turned around and I booted the guy right up in the air. And needless to say, I got the red card. And that was that was the end of that. I ended up um, sent off my very first game. Uh, but talking about Port Vale, we went on and we beat Stockport 2-1 in the Outer Glass Trophy. That was a, a great memory. You know, we um, who did we play? We played Exeter. Down at Exeter. It was, a, it was a midweek game. This was a semi-final in Autoglass. Not the most prestigious, glamorous competition, but still an opportunity to get to Wembley. And I remember playing, and then I, I was very seldom in the game. We, you know, it was just huff and puff throughout with, with both teams. And I remember the ball came through, and it was me against the keeper, and I just stinked it over him. And we got, we got the, uh, we ended up going to Wembley, which was a glorious day. And as I say, we faced Stockport, we won 2 1, we lifted out a glass trophy in front of 60,000 uh, fans. And, and on that day, I remember setting one up for my teammate Paul Kerr. So that was a great memory. And a week later, we ended up in the playoffs uh, to try and get promotion. It was against West Bromwich Albion. Lo and behold, it was uh, Ozzy Daly's team, the team that I could have been at. Uh, and it was a front a capacity crowd but unfortunately Peter Swan Port Vale centre-half got sent off early on and we lost the game 2-0 uh, so but I received uh, when I did come back to Teesside to stay I, I signed for Darlington John Rudge couldn't believe I was going to Darlington but I just wanted back in the area but I'd played enough games for Port Vale and I received my promotional medal via mail uh, which was great so Port Vale I was there roughly a year and a half won two medals couple of Wembley appearances so great memories you gained seven Republic of Ireland caps and went to the World Cup finals why did you choose Ireland? yeah well people question me over my nationality and choice I mean I had a, the, the thing that some people don't know I had a choice I met Andy Roxburgh um after the, the, there was the Everton game, we played Everton, it was three cup games. Not now where the game ends on the night. It was Everton here, Everton at Goodison, Everton back at Erson Park. And I remember coming off the, the game and was getting changed and Bruce Rear says, there's somebody to see you. 
just outside the uh, the dressing rooms, there was a small, they called it a gym, there was about two weights in it. And he just says, there's somebody to see you. And I remember walking out with a towel around me and there was Andy Roxburgh. And Andy Roxburgh had a word and says, look, I know you gave me a stick in the press, which I had. Um, I don't have to come and watch you personally. I've had you watched and I'll definitely cap you for Scotland. Whether it's a full cap or a B cap, I will definitely cap you. Um, and I shook his hand and, and off he went. And then in the, um, the following week, I got to see Stuart Ripley... Uh, playing for Blackburn Rovers against Newcastle United at St James's, me and Pally I'd get a pass to go up there we're getting my complimentary tickets and as we're waiting in the queue Jack Charlton passes and says listen knocks me, taps me on the shoulder and says listen son I've heard you've got Irish grandparents you hang fire and I'll cap you against Wales and I remember looking at Pally and thinking Jack's known for getting names wrong, maybe he thinks I'm somebody else but anyway I ended up uh, doing that and I made the right choice. I had a word with my father at the time. Uh, and Scotland had did nothing for me as an individual. Don't forget, Scotland's top scorer, William Glamorous Albion Rovers. All the letters I sent, only one club replied. That was Hearts. Celtic never replied, didn't have the courtesy. Rangers certainly wouldn't have replied because it was Catholic. They didn't sign the uh, Catholics back then. So, um, yeah, I went with Ireland. It was the right choice. I ended up going the after one and a half games. I ended up being part of the 22-man squad that went to the World Cup in Italy, 1990. And Ireland got to the quarterfinals. Scotland were back in that traditional first plane. Unfortunately, I didn't get a game, but hey, I played no part in getting them there. Sorry, I get it. Jack was loyal. And the guys who got them there deserved to play. Um, but I did get a picture with the Pope, and that was a highlight, being a religious person. You finished your career at Darlington through injury and started doing commentary with Alistair Brownlee. Why do you think it was so successful? Why was it so successful? I think the reason the partnership worked was we're totally different characters. I mean, Ali wouldn't see and say, I would see and say no wrong in anybody or anything. And I would just say it was as it was. I mean, the one thing we had in common was we were both passionate. passionate. We loved doing the commentary. And don't forget, we worked 10 years together. We never missed one pre-season league, FA Cup or Carling Cup game. I missed two UEFA Cup games due to my phobia of flying. That's the only time we were missing as a, as, a, as a duo. But when we were doing the commentaries, or the commentary, we'd record figures in match days, around 70,000 listeners. I'd love to know what the listening figures are now with the local uh, radio station. But it wasn't just football. There was a, a fun element. Uh, there was a phone in afterwards it was always lively there was always good debates um, and to confirm that we were a half decent commentary team we were nominated I think it was after the Eindhoven the, the Carling Cup final in the lead up that season for a New York Radio Festival award both of us flew over to the States um, and we ended up coming away with a gold radio award which was no mean feat we were absolutely delighted I always remember uh, Ali does a speech I go up to get the trophy the girl hands me the trophy the New York Radio Award I mean I've got one in my cabinet and I'm sure there's one in Ali's cabinet God rest him um, but on the night the lady hands me it the people all applaud clap and I look to it and the lassie says just take this we can't find yours and Alistair's so I found that pretty pretty funny but the end of that season we were flabbergasted when we, we lost the commentary rights Um some say it was because of my opinion. Whatever the reason was, we lost it at the very peak, the pinnacle of our careers. When we just lifted the Gold Radio Award, two or three months later, we'd lost the commentary rights and we'd never get back in. And obviously, Ali moved to uh, Pastures New. You had a successful time working alongside Malcolm MacDonald and Eric Gates on the Three Legends football phone-in. You did it for 14 years. Did you enjoy it? It was fantastic. I mean, it was like sitting in a pub... Uh, in the house with your pals and having a laugh and you were getting good money for it I mean it was a terrific show the amount of listeners which was proved as I mentioned radio figures was great the balance was right Malcolm was like the headmaster main gates who were the pupils the school kids and we all had big egos and opinions you know we were all real there was no fakeness to any of us and none of us were afraid like a lot 
a lot of journalists, uh, journalists now, everybody's scared of their jobs, scared to see anything out of sync. We didn't give a damn. And as long as we didn't swear, we could say what we liked. The banter was unbelievable. It was fantastic. The three of us would take the flak, we'd give it out. None of the clubs liked it. Uh, they had no control whatsoever. I mean, I remember a story Eric Gates told. And these are true stories, by the way. And this is what happens in the footballing world. So Eric, Peter Reid was the manager of Sunderland at the time. Uh, Eric Gates is obviously one of the three legends, maybe me and Malcolm, doing the nightly show tours every night. And here, uh, Eric's doing a bit for Sky before a Sunderland game. All of a sudden, the stewards get Eric B under the arms and start dragging him off while he's doing the interview. Anyway, Peter Reid, by all accounts, has demanded get him off. He ain't doing that on there and then hammering us on the night on the radio. Then at the end of that season, Eric did the uh, the commentary, or I did. He was a co-commentator. At the end of that season, uh, Sunderland got offered the uh, Sunderland the, the radio station. Eric worked for get in touch with Sunderland and say, yeah, we want to renew the commentary. To which they were told, yeah, you're only because Peter Reid had told them uh, the only way that you'll get the Sunderland commentary is if you get rid of Eric Gates and they ended up getting rid of Eric Gates and that's what happens you know there's more than meets the eye you see things that don't stroke egos and you're honest and you're forthright people in the towers want you out want you sacked and that happened to Eric Gates and that was a great shame because Gates was a very good uh, commentator, co-commentator he was very good in the three legends but the three of us would take the flak and, and we'd give it out but as I mentioned none of the clubs liked it but the Sunderland lineup changed Gatesy left, Mickey Hoss would come in and then Dickie Ord at the tail end but the show ended it was on well they ended in the commercial radio after 14 years with a great run Real Radio was bought out by Heart FM, which is Heart FM now. And they, they I believe, um, they own 50% cent of the, the airwaves or whatever. And they says at the time they were getting rid of football, they wouldn't do football. And to be fair, they don't do football. They've never done football. So it's not as if they'd replaced us, they just didn't do football. They say the football thing was a repetitive thing over all stations, and yet, if you listen to them, I'm sure they're still playing Adele and Kylie and all that crap. Anyway, we took the show to community radio, uh, but it wasn't profitable, so we pulled the plug. I mean, I did one season doing after-match phone-ins, but we couldn't get sponsors, and we had to stop as well. So uh, I hosted lounges in uh, the, the Legends Lounge at the Riverside, or I did when I stopped the radio and was offered a job. I mean, I wouldn't get offered a job when I was doing the radio, but as soon as I stopped, I got offered it. Uh, but myself, Pallister, Hignett, Fleming, after I finished that, we went to do the Footballing Academy, uh, and I did that for a couple of years, and I do a wee bit of coaching now, but I just do as I please these days. What were the highlights of your career? Highlights of your career? I mean, uh, I'm fortunate I've got highlights. I mean, as a 19-year-old making my debut for Morton against Celtic, that was my debut, I remember my father coming, and he's thinking, well... He's a, an ardent Celtic fan. My dad was a, an ardent Celtic fan. He obviously wanted Celtic to do well, but he wanted his son to do well. And I always remember that game. It ended up 1-1 and I actually scored that day. And it was disallowed. Not for offside. I was left midfield. I was a lot deeper then. There was an infringement in the box, but what, what a, a first game that would have been scoring against my boyhood heroes. Finishing top scorer. Well, Albion Rovers, 31 goals in total. Uh, I was delighted at that. My parents were delighted. Uh, when I came to Middlesbrough, we had three promotions. It was brilliant. Playing at Wembley. I played at Wembley three times. Won with Middlesbrough twi twi or two, two times with Port Vale. That was great experiences. I was actually on the bench, not officially, but the Republic Island when we played England. It was 1-1 that night. I think Lineker scored for England in the European Championships and Niall Quinn scored the equaliser. I think it was Niall Quinn. Uh, achieving the top league scorer I've been top league scorer at Middlesbrough in six, six consecutive seasons. Don't forget, I was there just under eight. I came in quarter way, halfway in the first season and I was booted out four or five months into the, the last season. So the full seasons I played, I ended up top league scorer 
So I was delighted nobody took my mind on that. Playing for the Republic, as I mentioned, gaining seven caps, going to World Cup in the early 1990 was an absolute highlight. Rubbing shoulders with Paul Gascoigne, Lineker, Rudy Hullet, Van Bastian. Incredible. Uh, all my goals were highlights. You know, some people say, what was your best goals you scored? Well, the goal I scored in my debut against Bradford, that lives in the memory. Uh, scoring the goal against Villa at Wembley to get Middlesbrough to Wembley at the Twin Towers for the first time in the club's history. Bruce Rear described it as a world-class goal, so it must have been half-decent. Uh, and scoring against Chelsea to get us to the top flight, they're, they're goals that are living in the memory uh, a lifetime. I loved the two goals against Newcastle. Last game of the season, had to beat Newcastle to stop them getting automatic promotion. We had to win the game to stay up, and we won 4-1. I scored two, and Ian Baird scored two. But my final Middlesbrough goal against Manchester United... I didn't know at the time, but it turned out that was my last goal. In front of a packed hall, it ends, straddled to the fence. You know, absolute dream time. But at Port Vale, as I mentioned earlier, scoring against Exeter to get into the... Again, that was for uh, the first time that, that Port Vale had been to Wembley. So scoring that was a, a great feat as well. But I'm also proud that I am uh, the six, six top scorer in Middlesbrough's 100 and... Is it 50 odd year history? Uh, and during my, my radio career, commentating in over 500 games alongside Ali and winning that gold radio award, New York, incredible. <laughs>